Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Uh, (laughs) I'm delighted to say this week we have the original panel with us. We're going to podcast like it's 2015. I had dinner with my students and I talked to them your about t- your students. students. Your students. Your students. Students. And I talked to them about politics. I built a wardrobe. <laughs> did you? I did. <laughs> Helen Thompson, Finn Balevsi, Chris Brooke. Yesterday, yesterday afternoon, I went to the talk by Antonio Negri, oh. the, uh, the legendary and now 83-year-old uh, Italian Marxist. We were first gathered around this table the first time we did this to talk about the previous general election, and we're going to talk about this general election. We're not going to talk about France today. Luckily, last week on the panel, we had a real expert, Robert Toombs, who got the final two right. The rest of us were half right. I think that's the polite way to put it. I think we're assuming that Macron is going to be the next president of France, but we shouldn't take anything for granted. But we will have our local Macronist, Hugo Drochon, back to tell us about what it's like inside Macron world in a couple of weeks after the result of the second round, when we will know for sure. So we won't speculate. Instead, we'll speculate about UK politics. I have heard people say that this is a boring general election because it's predictable, because we know who's going to win. Maybe we do. We'll see about that. We probably have a fair idea of who's going to be prime minister when it's all over. But again, let's see. But I don't think it's predictable at all. I think it's completely fascinating because so much of it is unpredictable, even if we know the headline result. I've lived through one, the rest of us have two, I think one genuinely predictable general election, which was 2001, the world's most boring election ever, where Tony Blair against William Hague, when not only did we know who was going to win, we knew that nothing would change. People said at the time, why did we bother with that? Because it's the same result. So this is nothing like that. That was still the time of broadly national swings in the vote, broadly national vote shares. So many different parts of the country are going to vote different ways this time. So we're going to start by talking about the place that is one of the most interesting sites of this election, which is Scotland, because there was polling at the weekend, and we have to be careful always about polling, though the polls for the French first round were spookily accurate. Polling that suggested that the Tory revival is gathering pace in Scotland, and that the Conservatives could win, I mean, let's say 10, 15 seats. They currently have one. And that Labour, and this seems really quite possible, will have none. And that the Labour vote share is now down in the mid-teens. And the Tory share is pushing 30. So I'll start with Chris. Do you believe that? Genuinely, it's quite something relative to what we've experienced over the last 20, 30 years in British politics. That's right. Um, When I was younger, I can remember these general elections where the Conservatives would win a single or sometimes no seats at all in Scotland, and people would talk about Scotland being a Tory-free zone. But we shouldn't lose sight of the deeper background, that in the 1950s, Scotland was very strongly conservative. The Labour hegemony has not been a permanent fixture of Scottish politics, and anything that has a beginning can have an end. I'm not altogether surprised we're seeing the realignment that we're seeing, to the extent that politics has been shaped by the Scottish referendum, you expect the political parties to flourish insofar as they can be cleanly identified with 
the nationalist cause or the unionist cause, and the SNP or the nationalist party, and the conservatives do a better job at presenting themselves as the unionist party. That's still the name of the party, the conservative and unionist party, although the unionist in that name refers to the union with Ireland, not the union with Scotland, curiously enough. But the Conservatives are a unionist party, and in Ruth Davidson, as I said on this podcast a few weeks ago, they've got a very, very effective leader. Um, So I'm not so surprised. I would be surprised if they won 15 seats, but I think they're seriously competitive in 10, and that's good for Scottish democracy. Is that what's going on? Obviously, we're not there, and and Scotland is another country. It's, It's not just... It's a long way away from Cambridge. I mean, it has its own now political identity and culture. It's quite hard from the outside to tell the real story, but... Is it union versus independence, or is it Brexit versus Remain? Because the other question is, you do have to find some party to represent the 40-ish percent, roughly, of Scots, if you count the people who stayed at home. Let's say it's around 40% who are in favour of Brexit. And though Ruth Davidson herself is kind of on both sides in this, as indeed was Theresa May, the Tories are also the party of Brexit. I think that's certainly got something to do with it, and I think it's it's the case that there's some anger in parts among some Scottish voters at the attempt by the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon to sort of claim a Remain vote as something that then was a vindication for Scottish independence. So the presumption that those who voted Remain in Scotland were now going to transfer their allegiance to the nationalist cause. And I I think that that was implicit in some of the things that Nicola Sturgeon said, and I think that she's paying a price for it. I think, though, we've also got a factor in that it isn't just about the two things you said. It's also about what is going on at Westminster. And that is, is that is how Scottish Labour stayed as strong as it was for as long as it did, because the party got hollowed out in Scotland at local level. But what it had, particularly via the personality of Gordon Brown and the position that he had in the new Labour government, first as Chancellor and then as Prime Minister, someone who was very well attuned to the needs of Scotland in relation to the Labour Party, or what Labour required out of Scotland, to put it that way. And since then, Labour have had two leaders who are clueless about Scottish politics. I mean, there was a lot of talk when Corbyn was first elected, oh, that will fix the Scottish problem. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. He doesn't help the Scottish Labour problem whatsoever. So at the same time, as well as the issue about the independence referendum for Scotland, the issue about Brexit, you've also got the fact that from Scotland's point of view, you look at the UK Labour Party and what does it have to say to Scotland? Nothing. And there is that broader story that... What Labour did was send its talented Scottish politicians south. Well, the other parties couldn't because they didn't yeah. have any. I mean, the Tory, you know, if you were a talented Scottish Tory, you couldn't go to Westminster because you can get elected. We should remember that this collapse of Labour in Scotland has happened over a really compressed period of time. If you go back to 2010, you know, which isn't actually that right. long ago. Yeah, in, our, in our politics, it's a lifetime, but yeah. Is, is that, you know, Labour on one of its worst performances ever in terms of the whole of the United Kingdom, until Britain actually gained seats in Scotland. This is a collapse that began in 2011 with the the Scottish elections, and it had a lot to do with the way in which the then Labour leader, Ed Miliband, dealt with the tension between Westminster politics and Scottish politics. I did dealt with it very, very badly. And it was the beginning of this sort of carving out of different parts of the UK because Labour put on votes in 2010 in two places, in Scotland and in London. Scotland and London became these two poles and the rest of the country going the other way. And the only other thing to add is that the SNP having 54 out of the 59 seats... 56. 56, 56, excuse me. How can you sustain that? 
Yeah. The only way is down. So people can't expect them to have a buttressed fortress that's impregnable to all comers, given the volatility of the rest of the politics that's around them. And given that they are no longer plausibly the anti-establishment party because they're the establishment. I think two of the SNP MPs have been suspended, and that's why 54 is a decent count. Good. <laughs> I mean, the other thing we should just say on this is, is the, Wales, the Wales situation is, is because something not quite the same as what's gone on for um, Labour in Scotland, but some similar patterns are now emerging in Wales. There's a poll on Monday which had Labour at 30% and the Conservatives at 40%. Now, the difference is you haven't got a nationalist party that can be anywhere near as effective in Wales, not least because of the language question. But we are seeing some of the problems that Labour had in Scotland emerging to the fore in Wales too. Is it possible that what we see in Scotland is closer to the broader trend that we see across Europe? Because the real story is the collapse of the main Social Democratic Party. I mean, if Labour are polling 15% in Scotland, as Helen says, it's happened incredibly quickly, but not as far or as fast as the equivalent story in the Netherlands, or as we've seen in France. Monsieur Amon polled 6%, I think. So there is that European story that you've got nationalist or populist parties doing very well and then mainstream centre-right parties holding their ground and mainstream social democratic parties dropping off a cliff and we're not seeing that in England because Labour still thanks to first past the post have this kind of artificial buttress but in Scotland first past the post has killed them at which point their vote has just died is Scotland in line with that wider European story? To an extent, I mean, on the one hand, I'd be nervous about exaggerating stories of social democratic collapse. What happened in France is far more about the failure of the Hollande presidency than the disaster of the French Socialist Party more broadly. And I'm sure the socialists will do better in the legislative elections that are coming up. Their crisis is focused around presidential politics. And as a number of people are saying, we're not seeing evidence of serious social democratic decline in Germany at the moment. Under Martin Schulz, the party is experiencing something of a revival at the moment. And Germany is still the most important country for thinking about European politics. Um, So on the one hand, I wouldn't want to exaggerate or, or deny the scale of the crisis in social democratic politics. And on the other hand, of course, in Scotland, the national question, the independence question is extremely important. And to the extent that you try to fold Scotland into broader patterns of European politics, you risk losing sight of that. So there's obviously something to that argument, but I wouldn't want to push it too far. Labour was, a few years ago, plausibly the last party that did have a story to tell for all parts of the United Kingdom. And as Helen said, I think now it doesn't. Is there no way Labour can find a way back if the divide is this question about are you on the side of the union or are you for independence? I mean, can Labour not Labor claim seem- to be the par- a party of the union anymore? <clears throat> they seem to be s- stretched across too many different divides, not just the union. Um, you know, where do they stand on all of the different questions that are in front of the British electorate right now? They got completely muddled on Brexit and they continue to be muddled on Brexit. Keir Starmer's attempt to provide a clear picture on where Labour now stands on Brexit is a bit of a model still. Well, it's hard to summarise it in a sentence. It's not an electioneering slogan, shall we say. Yeah. I mean, it is a plausible position, but it's just not... But it's so in the detail. They don't have a way to be able to easily straddle across the educational gap, as you've spoken about, across different income levels, across the question of whether or not the union is the most important thing or whether the European Union is the most important thing. They're stuck on all of these pinch points, whereas... 
the Liberal Democrats have the freedom as a smaller party to be able to take a position and, and stick to it and be consistent against what they've done for many, many years. The Conservatives, one could argue, have taken huge advantage of a particular set of circumstances that have come about. And the Conservatives do have a series of easily summarisable positions on this election. We'll come on to one in a second, which is Theresa May saying, give me a stronger hand. And the other of which is strong, stable government, coalition of chaos. I think what's interesting, in just in terms of we stick with the territorial politics for the moment of the United Kingdom, is if we leave Northern Ireland out of it, where we essentially have got obviously a different party system, is, is that it is the Conservatives who have turned themselves back into a party that can compete in every part of Britain. And if someone had said that to us, I think even in 2010, we might have been rather surprised. I mean, you can see elements of it coming to the fore, even Scotland aside in 2015, because of the fact that the Conservatives did quite well in Wales in 2015. But it turns out that at moments, shall we say, of national crisis, that the Conservative Party is still capable of rising to the electoral occasion, one might even say rising to the statecraft occasion of, of finding a position that it can take that can appeal to a, a relatively broad coalition of voters from one end of the island to the other. Can we come on to this question about what then a stronger hand means? Because this election will be followed by a set of high stakes negotiations around two questions, one of which is a possible second Scottish independence referendum and the other of course is Brexit. So if we take the first first say the Tories, let's say it's 15 seats. I mean, or say the SNP lose 10 seats, something like that. So there is a view that that really does put a spanner in the works of the SNP's demand, which needs to be approved in Westminster for a second referendum. But it doesn't change anything in practical political terms, because, you know, the SNP, whether they have 54 or 44 MPs, will still be the largest Scottish party in Westminster. But they'll never be large enough to force any issue. They're still dependent on it. So it's about sort of the narrative, the way in which they can present whether they got an endorsement from the electorate. Do you think that if the Tories do well in Scotland, that does kill the SNP's ability to push for a second referendum? Or is that not practically the issue here? Well, I think the issue's always been about timing. It's been like whether the SNP could put sufficient pressure on Theresa May to concede a referendum on an SNP timetable rather than on Theresa May's timetable. I don't think that Theresa May's position has ever been that she's not prepared to see another Scottish referendum, but it would be in the 2020s, and the thing that she absolutely was not going to agree to was any referendum that was going to go on in Scotland while the negotiations... During the two years. During the two-year period. And I think that that was actually unlikely that the SNP could have succeeded with that demand before this general election, and I think it's now near impossible that it will be able to succeed with that demand for having one whilst these negotiations are still going on. But beyond that, then things don't necessarily change. Everything then will depend on what happens in the next actual Scottish election. Yeah, which is not till 2021, so then we're, we're, we're pushing it way out because presumably once you get past 2019, then it will be, well, we need to put it to the Scottish electorate because the SNP can then make it part of their manifesto commitments for 2021 and then we're into 2022 and if 2010 to now is a long time in politics 2022 the robots will have taken over so it's irrelevant right then one think that there is another way of describing this I mean it sounds to me like the result of this election on current polling is that it will make a second Scottish independence referendum very hard to achieve 
the number to look for, though, I don't think is the number of seats the Conservatives win in the election. It's the polling, which is still going on on a very regular basis about the independence question more generally. We know that the SNP won almost every seat in Scotland last time because of the exaggerations you get in a first-past-the-post electoral system. There's, There's... On a proportional system, they wouldn't have won anything like the number of seats that they won. What we're seeing is what you'd expect to see in a first-past-the-post system, which is that the unionist majority, still just, is better coordinating itself around candidates who might plausibly beat SNP candidates in a first-past-the-post election. We know that about half of Scots want independence and about half of Scots don't. And the referendum will become irresistible, I think, if Nicola Sturgeon is able to persuade a clear majority of Scots that, in the polling, that independence is what they want. And she hasn't been able to do that, that just as the polls over Brexit have remained remarkably stubborn since the referendum, and still about 45% of people think it's a good idea, and about 45% of people think it's a bad idea, and about 10% of people don't know, the polling on Scottish independence has remained remarkably consistent. And I think while it doesn't move, Theresa May can resist the drumbeat of calls for a referendum, if it begins to move, it becomes much harder. And I've said this before, it's, you know, Scotland is this f- incredible study in how different systems produce different results. So if 45% of people agree with Nicola Sturgeon in the independence referendum, it's a thumping defeat. If 45% agree with her in the Scottish parliamentary elections, it gets her a bare majority. And if 45% agree with her in Westminster first past the post, she wins everything. It's the same number. And Macron is about to win the French presidency because he managed to get himself up to 23%. (laughs) Democracy is weird. I think the other thing, though, we should bear in mind about the the size of the SNP majority in Scotland in 2015, it was in a particular context about the possibilities of coalitions at Westminster. Mm -hmm. And there was a sense in which the only rational thing for a Scottish voter to do in 2015 was to vote for the SNP because that was the way to get as much influence on Scottish motors as possible at Westminster because the hope would be that Labour would be in a coalition with the SNP and uh, Labour could win as a majority government then Scotland mattered less. If Labour was dependent on the SNP then there was more Scottish influence at Westminster. So the whole possibility of that working out, obviously that isn't what worked out, I think really did reinforce the size of the SNP majority, not just the first past the post, because otherwise you'd have a hard time explaining why the SNP could win in a place like the border constituency, this name I'm not going to be able to remember, which had voted about 90% for the union. So I think if we just sort of say, OK, that the SNP vote in Westminster last time represented Scottish nationalism in Scottish national wanting independence vote, that doesn't really add and, up. And so you're saying, and that is not a realistic prospect this time, no. very few people believe in a Corbyn-Sturgeon government, so... That's a problem for the Conservatives as well, obviously, that they don't, because they can't play that card either. But I think that that whole issue has been taken away this time. And the backfill is and Nicola Sturgeon being able to play the other side of the politics of fear, which is the Conservatives are coming. They're going to take over and they're going to do bad things for Scotland. And so whereas before there was the fear of the Labour-SNP coalition and the Conservatives being able to do that line very effectively, that's gone this time. And you're saying the likelihood of the polling changing. One of the reasons the polling might change is if Nicola Sturgeon is able to frame effectively the Conservative pressure back on Scotland. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So let's broaden it out now and ask about that wider pitch that Theresa May is making to the country, which is give her a nice big thumping majority so that she can go and negotiate with those pesky Europeans from a position of strength. So it seems to me one of the ironies about that is that these pesky Europeans with whom she's going to have to negotiate are on the whole representatives themselves of coalition governments. So, you know, if if coalition government QED equals weakness and chaos, she ought to be able to wipe the floor with them anyway. I mean, what, what's so scary about Angela Merkel? She's just part of a coalition government. So there's that. <laughs> but there's also the question about, this is really about the internal dynamics of the Conservative Party in Westminster. I mean, that's what this is all about, if we're to believe that one of the reasons she called this election was because she she's blamed it on the other parties. But her real worry was about what a small majority allowed the harder fringe of her party to do to her and to threaten her with. So do we think that, say, they get a 100-seat majority that that really changes her ability to negotiate over Brexit? I think there is a way in which you do it, but it does not because it directly strengthens the hand in terms of negotiating with the EU. I think that the situation that I can imagine that she feared is is that she was going to get into at least a kind of four-way, potentially a fifth-way set of negotiations in which the players become her government, the executive of the UK government, the EU 27, the Scottish government, influential people at Westminster, and I don't just mean in the House of Commons, plus conceivably, if we avoid direct rule in Northern Ireland, the Northern Irish government, and the ability then of the EU27 to play off the multiple political actors in the UK against each other. And that would include in the people at Westminster, obviously, some people within the Conservative Party, one of whom, if it weren't for this election, would have been George Osborne. So, yeah, so she's already succeeded in one of her she goals, has, right? I think, succeeded in one of her goals already, which is to eliminate him, Flush him directly from proceedings. So to the extent that there is not the opportunity for the EU27 to play off the different political actors in Britain against each other, I think she has strengthened her negotiating hand. That isn't about the substance of what she can agree and whether she can get a free trade agreement with the EU27 on the terms that she wants. It's simply that she will have less domestic interference in trying to achieve that. Yes. What I find myself wondering about is how much negotiation there's really going to be. If you look at the background since Article 50 was was triggered, that May had her two or three-page letter that accompanied the notification of Article 50, and the EU batted away significant elements of that almost immediately. And it becomes very clear that the negotiations are going to take place in the sequence determined by the EU according to the EU's timetable. And they've been very consistent, and despite what you say about coalitions, they've been very united in... I think coalitions uh, make strong government. I should have that. They've been very united in presenting a unified front and a consistent line over time. And so it seems to me that it's not so much about will Theresa May have a stronger negotiating hand, as it will help her with the new timetable that's coming into view, which is it's looking increasingly likely that there'll be a very extended transitional period. Her early ambition to get 
Brexit wrapped up by 2019 in time for a 2020 election. That timetable was ripped up by the EU immediately following Article 50 notification. And she would like to have a bigger majority. Sure, all prime ministers would like to have a big majority, but she'd like to have a big majority and a term that stretches out until 2022 to avoid getting caught with a potential betrayal narrative of having to go to the country in 2020 with the extreme, with the nationalist, with the jingoist extreme of her party saying, well, you said you'd deliver Brexit and hang on, we're still locked into some kind of transitional arrangement. We still have to follow the rulings of the European Court. We still have free movement and so on and so on. Once it became clear that the hardest of hard Brexits going off the cliff edge was not a serious threat, she was kind of boxed into this position and I think forced into doing what she's doing. One thing that has been said about why prime ministers might call snap elections, particularly as in this case where she was incredibly successful at keeping her intentions secret, so there was very little planning, it makes it easier for Conservative Central Office or the central part of any political party to impose candidates because they haven't had time to pick their own. So if they, if they knew they had until 2020, a lot of Conservative local associations might pick candidates that were less congenial for the May government. And now they have to go to Conservative Central Office and go down the list of approved candidates. Seems to me like that, if that's true, I don't know if that is true, I think it probably is true. That's quite a good reason for her to call a snap election. People will look back and say that Theresa May has played a blinder in getting the snap election because she gets the space in the negotiations. She gets a party potentially that's more in line with what she wants to do. And she also gets the time to move away from what is likely to be a set of bad economic data coming out over the next 18 months to two years. And so I think in every way you look at it, you have to say, well done. However, well, this is assuming she doesn't lose, in which case but, yeah, they won't say she they won't a say well <laughs> Brilliant. You gave us Jeremy well, Corbyn as Prime Minister. Let's see, who's put Genius. Up, let's see who's put up against her in her constituency, because her constituency is still remain. It's highly unlikely that she would get beaten, but let's have some fun with that, why don't we? She also builds up a client base. I mean, yeah. at the moment, apart from Amber Rudd, very few people in the Conservative Party owe her enormously. Except the women in the cabinet, almost all of whom got their seats Came through her program. thanks to her women to win program. And she, so she does have that client base. Mm-hmm. I believe every single woman yes, in the cabinet was selected via the program that she created in the Conservative Party to redress the imbalance of women representation. And that client base is about to get much, much bigger, not only insofar as she can claim the mandate that she hasn't been able to claim so far, but also there'll be 100, 100 plus Conservative MPs who owe their career in Westminster to her calling the election when she did. And that will be of immense importance to her in making it harder for the party to turn very, very sharply on her if things get hairy and things are extremely likely to get hairy. We're going to do one more thing today. On this podcast, we like our historical analogies. I think that's probably no surprise to people who listen regularly. And I mentioned before that I can remember one really boring election, but I think most general elections are not boring. And every general election throws up parallels. We've already seen with this one people looking for past snap elections and then trying to find analogies when prime ministers have called surprise or at least elections that came well within the five-year term, and it came back to bite them. And the example that's held up for that is 1974. So we're going to finish with a little bit of podcasting like it's 1974, but with the lights on. 
So there were two elections in 1974, and this is where we have to reveal our ages. So <laughs> do you mind me saying this, Helen? You can remember it, I can remember it just, just. It's the first one I can remember, February yeah, 1974. We, and most people who are our age, who were kind of six-ish, around then, seven-ish, can remember candlelight or you know, cooking by you know, on a gas stove and so on. There was a February election, there was an election in the autumn in October, I think. So we'll just talk about the February one. So Ted Heath called it, and he framed it, again, people have said, in similar-ish terms to this one, which is the reason he was calling it sooner than he needed, was because he wanted the voters to say whether they wanted the government to be able to govern or whether they were happy with the government continuing to be held to ransom. But in this case, it was not by Parliament or by another party. It was by the unions and particularly the miners. And then the, the sort of folk memory of this is that he said to the people, do you want us to be able to govern? And they said, well, you're already the government. So you know, what's the question? It's not like the miners are on the ballot paper. Helen, is it comparable? I mean, it's not. I mean, it's one, one way in which it's obviously not comparable is that Theresa May is explicitly saying the people who are making it impossible for me to govern are on the ballot paper, whereas the miners weren't. And the attempt to say that the miners means Labour didn't work. Is that the difference? It's quite a hard question to think about because one of the things that's striking about the February 1974 election is is how quickly Heath's framing of it as who governs the country, the government or the miners, fell apart. Because actually, if you look at the, the detail of it, in a clear parallel to what's going on now, there was a set of negotiations going on between the government and the miners or the National Union of Mining Workers. And in some sense, Heath wanted to strengthen his hand in those negotiations about the miners' pay. The critics, both from his own party, in particular from Enoch Powell, who left the Conservative Party and ran as a candidate for the Ulster Unionists, and also the the Labour leader, Harold Wilson, said, look, this is just disingenuous nonsense, because actually you do intend to give the miners this pay rise. You're just using this election to legitimate what you're going to do anyway. So he wasn't able, actually, to frame it around negotiations, because I think it is true that he was looking for a way of legitimating something that in political and economic circumstances of the time, either party in government was going to do, which was to give the miners what they wanted. And when Labour won the election, that's exactly what happened. And so having tried to frame it one way, he then found that actually it became in significant part about something else. And ironically, that other thing was the European community. Because, again, uh, Enoch Powell, in saying that he wasn't standing as the Conservative Party candidate any longer, said that Conservative voters who believe like him should vote Labour. So there is no equivalent to that person no. in this, and is then, there? I'm trying to think. As you say that, can you think of a... Well, you could say that Tony Blair is giving mixed messages about... Tony Blair is the Enoch Powell of contemporary <laughs> politics. Finbar's yes. giving me a look. There is some, I hadn't thought about that parallel before, but there is something in that. In his, uh, he is uh, someone who is uh, quasi-now detached from the Labour Party, who is giving a message that is not really vote Labour. It may say that that's what he's, that he's not saying that, but if you look at this more detail, that isn't what he's saying. Most people think, or the election pathologists think, that Powell's position did influence the outcome of that election. And that election was interesting, and again, I think this may be a parallel with what's going on this time. That election was won for Labour in the West Midlands. It was won in the heartland of Powellism, if we want to call there is such a thing, I'm not sure that there is, but it's where Powell came from and where he'd been politically um, successful. It was the, the biggest regional swing in England there had ever been between the the Second World War and that election happened in the West Midlands. 
so the disanalogy there would be there is no heartland of Blairism, is there, unless it's London? Well, it, it feeds into a broader theme of, of Helen's uh, yeah. analysis, which is that Labour is going to get wiped out yeah. in the West Midlands. That's, what I was say, that's um, why I think it is a parallel, the, because this okay. time it will be the other way around. The yeah. Conservatives yeah. will do spectacularly well in the West Midlands. I bet right. they would do yeah. better there than anywhere so, else. And that's what I mean in the sense that Powell was able to swing it. You know, Blair still has a cachet among, let's call them, parts of the establishment, but he doesn't have a doesn't have a hold on the people. Powell it was the other way around. I mean, Powell loathed by the establishment, but a really popular figure, which Blair isn't. And the same case that has been made for him swinging the February 74 election has also been made for him swinging the 1970 election. election yeah. the, the, uh, the fallout from yeah. his Rivers of Blood speech has been identified by political scientists as reasons that key demographics swung to the Tories in 1970. So this extraordinary ability to shape national general election outcomes when he wasn't on the front bench of his party. It's a remarkable electoral history. Fimba, do you think that what Helen described, so leaving aside all the big differences, could happen this time in that Theresa May could lose control of the narrative? The, the one way this could go wrong for her is that she's not able to hold and she's already shown that she's ruthlessly disciplined in holding to her catchphrases uh, that she's not able to hold th this election being about strong government versus coalition of chaos and strengthen my hand I mean those seem to be the two there'll be other things going on too around the economy and of course there will presumably be quite a lot of putting it politely negative messaging about Jeremy Corbyn but could she lose control of the narrative? Um, I'd be surprised if she did. Uh, as you said, she's been ruthless to this point, and all of the opportunities to change the framing from Labour are gone because the vote in support of Article 50 and the position they've taken, the muddled positions they've taken since then in trying to clear up Brexit. Um, the one person I should mention in terms of the conversation we just had, though, is Ken Clark. What's Ken going to say? Is he going to chip in and provide himself he's, with a He's definitely not the Enoch Powell. He's not the Enoch Powell, that's true. But he is the one conservative big beast who has said he is going to stand again and has clearly taken a position saying that he thinks that this is the wrong path for the country. He may be just quietly going to take his seat back and sit in Parliament and do some interesting things, but he, he'd be the one hope. So just on that one, I mean, Helen, you can come in here. I mean, I would assume, he, he, again, totally opposite from Powell, he, he's not doing it because he thinks he has any groundswell of popular support he's doing it because he still thinks being in Westminster is where you need to be over the next five years because that's where the key decision is going to be made so again it's very different from Powell right? it is and I think the other thing we should bear in mind is, is before Powell made his EC intervention about voting Labour when he first wrote his letter which basically said he wasn't going to stand as a Conservative candidate the primary reason then he gave is is because is the Conservative government he says has repudiated every single promise it made in the 1970 election manifesto and Heath was fighting that election, supposedly anyway, about this incomes policy and not giving the miners what they demanded because of the stage three restrictions of that incomes policy, when the Conservatives had fought the 1970 election saying in no circumstances will we have an incomes policy. So the, the chances that Heath could ever frame this successfully, I think, were pretty slim. Whereas Theresa May has got a referendum behind her to, and she sees it, authorise the position that she's now taken. He didn't have anything really to authorise what he's doing. May can also say that 2015 manifesto wasn't my manifesto. Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm calling yeah. an election, because I couldn't. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm breaking those promises. Yeah. They weren't my bloody promises. Yeah. In the, yeah. I mean, that's what she thinks. And yeah. this election gets to wash all that away, yeah. and they get, they get what will be a paper-thin manifesto, which will be incredibly light on detail, and won't pin them down in any significant way in across a vast range of policies, get them away from this conversation about no tax rises. All of that goes away once this manifesto 
three pages or four pages, however tiny it is, comes out. So let me throw in finally just a couple more sort of interesting historical echoes here. So the the Labour Party that won in in February seventy four at least didn't win win, but ended up forming the government and then went on to win slightly more decisively in October. Um, they ran on a pretty left wing Corbynish it was manifesto that was drafted by. In some ways, it's still the case that and we've heard one reason for thinking this. You know, Enoch Powell and Tony Benn were the dominant figures in British politics through this period, though neither of them really ever came close to being prime minister. And Tony Benn was very instrumental. He was ecstatic in, about that 1974 victory because he said, "Look, it was his manifesto in some ways. A left-wing Labour Party can win an election, and the the right wing of the party, the people who went on to form the Social Democrats, were deeply demoralised by but that." But crucially, one of the things that the Benn manifesto contained yeah. was a commitment to a referendum on Europe. He did. Because Ben Ben was a Eurosceptic. Yeah. And there is a case, I mean, Helen, you've said this to me, so I'm borrowing it from you, that actually Europe was the decisive issue then because Labour was able to put yeah. itself on the side of the people who thought that Heath had dragged Britain into Europe. And, and we shouldn't lose sight of Scotland either. That 1974 is when the Scottish nationalists emerge and the national question is placed very firmly on the agenda. Colin Kidd is a Scottish historian who's been arguing that 1974 is absolutely the decisive year, that the tradition of Scottish nationalism before 1974 is largely trivial, and most of the people who kind of call themselves nationalists are basically sort of unionists when you scratch away at them. Nationalism explodes onto the scene in 1974. So I think there is this real sense that this electoral era that was opened by the 1974 election also with the emergence of the Liberals as the third party. The other thing it may well be is, coming to an end now. The other thing as well is is if it were not for the fact that the effectively Ulster Unionists were created by this election, is the Conservatives would still have won that election because they were effectively Conservative MPs or de facto Conservative MPs they broke away mm-hmm. the Ulster Unionists who Powell then went to fight for in that election in, in South Downs because of their rejection of the Sunningdale Agreement. So if they'd stayed in the Conservative Party, then despite all the mess that Heath made of that campaign, the Conservatives, they wouldn't have had a majority, but they would have been the largest party in terms of seats. So, And you've stolen my last line, which was going to be that what 1974 marked was the end of, in, in 1970, I think something like 87% of yeah. the vote was either Labour or Conservative. And then the Liberals gained close to 12% of the vote in that election. And no, that- it was more than that. Okay, well, anyway, it was, a, it was a huge, Yeah, they didn't gain seats, but they gained a huge vote share relative. And it was the end. It was the, it, it did initiate this period. It was the beginning of the end of the two-party system. You can tell, like, we're getting more excited than 1974. I'm slightly embarrassed that we're obviously so much more enthusiastic. It symbolised by the fact that actually Labour won that election in the sense that they then formed a minority government. And actually their share of the vote was 6% lower than in 1970 when they lost the election. Lots to talk about. We're going to do some more of these. We'll try not to get too overexcited. I, I want to do 1931 next. <laughs> I got this look of... Uh, I can yeah. tell if that was a look of enthusiasm or something other than that. Um, and maybe others too. People can suggest them if you want to uh, suggest historical comparisons you'd like us to do. We won't do 2001, probably. If you'd like to find out more about us, the panellists, um, go to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com. And you can read about all of our past episodes as well. And if you'd like to contact us through this election campaign, we're on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. We'll be putting out a few extra things up to the election itself. But of course, we're still going to look at the rest of the world. There's a lot going on, not just France. I think President Trump might have something to say about Korea today. If anything blows up, we'll talk about that too. Do please join us next week. 
My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. I'm whiffling Tony Blair's Three Not Pal. That gives me some satisfaction. (laughs) That was good. That was like, I always think at the end of it, we should have learned something. I learned a lot from that. (laughs) That was a really good analogy. We have to think about what's happened and, and what might come next. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking polit... <laughs> Something blew up. That was really mm. safe by the moment. We're going to yeah, do that we're going to read. <laughs> I knew we were going to do it. <laughs> when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.